Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Bill Summers and Mike Clark of the seminal jazz funk group, The Headhunters. The Headhunters were Herbie Hancock's band when he took a new turn into more electric, funkified music in the 1970s. Their first album together, Headhunters, was the very first platinum-selling jazz album in music history. That's one million copies sold on its initial release. Mike Clark and Bill Summers are two of a kind. They share a love for music that has never died. Their love for each other comes across in this discussion as well. The pair have kept the Headhunters alive for over 40 years now. And 11 years after their last release, the Headhunters have a new album, Speakers in the House, set to come out on November 4th. Joining Summers and Clark are National Endowment for the Arts jazz master Donald Harrison, Stephen Gordon, bassist Reggie Washington, and organist Cherry Z. The album also features Scott Roberts and Fode Sissoka on Cora. The new album fuses the band's African and New Orleans influences with their ever-present technical jazz funk, rooted in music history and growing their sound right on through the present moment. We have a wide-ranging discussion touching on food, music, race and racism in America, and we go deep on several tracks from the new album. I hope you enjoy this talk with two music legends. You mind if I uh, ask you a few questions and then we let Mike join us when he gets here? Yeah. Something that is interesting to me, I wanted to ask Mike about it as well, but your story as it's unique to you, did you grow up in New Orleans? Yes and no. All of my family is from this area going back over 100 years. So kind of my birthplace, but I was raised in Detroit. Was it part of the sort of great migration? Your family went north? and Yeah, they, they went north to escape racism. Yeah. And did they? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They found that out pretty soon. They went to the, from the frying pan into the fire. Was at least in the South, it was it was overt, and you and you knew your you knew your enemy, not enemy, but your brothers, sisters, who were just misled. They were good people. I remember, if I may, I remember an incident where a neighbor of mine, who was an elderly gentleman, who lived diagonally from my house in uptown New Orleans, which is kind of I guess an exclusive area. On my street, there were no black families, but within blocks, there were many. It was like a controlled segregation kind of thing. My neighbor, Hal, I befriended him. We just began to talk as neighbors. And he made a statement to me one day that was really alarming. He said, Bill, you're not a nigger. You don't talk like a nigger or act like a nigger. 
And I said, hell, guess what? He said, what, Bill? I said, hell, I am a nigga. But in in a way that I, I, I hope people could appreciate it, I just n- needed to let him know who I was and that I was not ashamed to be black. It's really interesting. You know, he, he thought he was giving me a compliment. Yeah. And I decided to become a closer friend to him and not hold him um, responsible for a statement. And one day I walked into his house. He invited me in because he was a jeweler. He made jewelry, and he liked a bracelet I had. And he said, could, could, could I, could I um, borrow that from you? Because I'd like to reproduce it. And I said, sure, hell. And I um, went to his house, and he had a baby grand piano sitting there with a, a really nice lamp next to it, like a Tiffany lamp. And I walked to the piano because I've been classically trained in the conservatory for 10 years. And I went to the piano and started playing some sheet music that he had on the piano. And he started crying. I said, well, well how? What's, what's wrong? He said, well, that piano belonged to my wife and she died. That piano was in my living room. He gave me the piano. Wow. What a statement, right? So, you you know, sometimes you can't judge people. <laughs> uh, they have a reason to feel the way you, that they do. Yeah. I couldn't understand it, but I could. I mean, that's a generous interpretation for sure. That's a very, it's very generous of spirit to be able to go not there. Really, it's not really that generous. It's just being a, just being a real person. Hey, guys. Mike. Mike. Bill and I were just getting started a little bit, and I was asking him a a little bit about his early life. I promise I want to spend most of this conversation with the two of you talking about the new record, which I've spent some time with, and there's a lot I want to ask you about. But kind of hoping maybe I could finish a question or two with Bill and then ask you some of the similar questions, Mike, and then we'll talk about the new album. Let's go. I'm going to get some water, so finish up. I'll be right back. I'm going to get some water, Mike. (laughs) So you started to allude to it, Bill, but I'm curious. So when did, when did music start for you? Like when, you know, when did it come into your life and was it imposed on you or was it something you loved early on? Like, how did that work? I like music, but my parents enrolled my brother and I in a conservatory, the Detroit Conservatory of Music. I spent 10, 10 years there playing classical piano. Yeah, it was imposed as I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> what music was first your music? What music did you first choose? Well, I mean, R&B was readily accessible because I listened to R&B radio in it because I, I came from a black community and I lived there. So we listened to WCHB in Detroit and it was all R&B. You know, so I was raised on that, but I also had a large, my parents had a large record collection, which included uh, everybody from Perez Prado to to the Lonest Monk. So I had a good, I had a good cross-section of music to deal with. And then I started to buy my own records when I was eight. I think the first record I bought was called Monk Mysterioso by the Lonest Monk. That was the first record I bought as a kid. I had to be about nine. That's pretty refined taste. Not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That was pretty normal. Yeah. 
Mike, how about you? I, I I'm curious about I'm curious about the Oakland that you grew up in. Obviously, it's such a storied place, and the post-war era in Oakland. There's so much that people talk about and know about it, but you grew up in such what seems to me a musical and political hotbed, social hotbed. Could you talk at all a little bit about what the Oakland was of your young adult life? I didn't uh, grow up in Oakland. I I got there when I was about. 19 or 20. That mm. was my young adult life. But before that, my father was a drummer, but he was a railroad man. So he traveled all the time, but he was a part-time drummer as a kid. And he also, as Bill's parents, had a hell of a collection of records. We had Prez Prado and <laughs> Patricia, <laughs> Count Basie and, you know, Duke Ellington, all of it. I had traveled in the su- Southern States a lot and also in Pennsylvania And everywhere I went as a child, I was a child drummer. So my father would take me to the nightclubs and find a jazz band. First thing, whatever town we get, he'd find all the jazz joints and then go out and take me and then pay the drummer five bucks or buy the band leader a drink or whatever it took in the 50s and have me sit in. I could already play a professional level of pretty good at eight or nine years old. I'd had a lot of experience by then playing with adults. So by the time I got to Oakland, I had a hell of a, a career behind me. <laughs> what it was like there in Oakland at, at the, during the late 60s was the hippie movement was on strong. The counterculture, as it's called, or as Huey Newton and the Black Panthers were rolling heavy. The entire political, the Vietnam War was on. And of course, I was in the streets with the rest of the young people protesting and doing, and my music reflected all of that. As far as what was going on around town, I was able to play with Joe Henderson, Farrell Saunders, Bobby Hutchison, Vince Guaraldi, a whole lot of people that were not famous like those guys that that later became famous, such as the Escovito brothers, Bill Summers, Paul Jackson, me, and most of my friends became well-known artist. John Handy was there. I played with John Handy. I played with uh, John Hendricks. I played uh, with John Hendricks. Yeah. Jerry Hahn was there, the guitar player. A lot of people that became well-known in the 60s I was playing with before anybody knew them. So I was working a gig and uh, this guy came in and he was staring at me the whole time I was playing. And I'm like, okay, he's obviously whoever this man is. He's a musician and he appreciates drumming or He's certainly staring at it. And uh, so I wonder if he loves you. (laughs) Yeah. As it turned out, (laughs) I I went over to his table. He introduced him. My name is Paul Jackson. I said, well, I know you're a musician. What do you play? And he didn't say he played bass. He said, I play organ because I had an organ trio, a jazz organ trio in this club. And he said, I said, would you like to join us for a tune? And he came up and tore the roof literally. (laughs) sang and played organ and I gave him my business card that night when I got home from the gig he was in my driveway with some uh, African ash heat and a jug of wine (laughs) I didn't recognize the car I'm who's in my driveway you know (laughs) man gets out of my the car and I'm oh it's that bass player the organ player and I'm like, come on in, MF. And he's like, all right, MF. And he came in, and we became best friends that night. We smoked up a bunch of weed, you know, whatever we had. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. John Coltrane and James. <laughs> Me. My <laughs> wife out and was, what the hell is going on out here? We're laughing and cracking up and having fun. And 
So the next morning, the very next morning or the next day, he came back over. He's in my driveway again by noon or one o'clock or whatever. And we went over to his house. I took my drums over there and we started playing. And like within a week, we were in about 15 different bands together. And we played together for the rest of our lives. That's incredible. It was an incredible relationship and an incredible story to meet somebody that I, that I connected with like that on a profound level. He connected with my family. I connected with his family. It was an amazing time. And we had a blast, man. Every day was a new adventure. And if all Jackson like Summers and I do. You, hey, you hey, know. hey, Mike, I want to add something. They were like, they were like Ebony and Ivory. They, they were inseparable. They were like twins. Yeah, we were. We were like inseparable for years and years and years and years and years. You know what I mean? It wasn't just music. We did everything together. We do. <laughs> I remember, Mike. <laughs> I know you do. Oh, my God. That's amazing. If we weren't working professionally, we would go to somebody else's gig every night, every seven nights a week. So that was my Oakland experience. And Paul, of course, took me to meet musicians that he'd known all his life. And then later on, I was a jazz drummer. I wasn't thinking about playing any funk. I could play funky, and I had a blues background. I played with a lot of famous blues cats. I lived in Texas, and people just needed a good drummer, and I could always play funky beats. Even when I was nine years old, I could always play funky. You know, I just could do it. I never practiced it. I didn't have to rehearse it, nothing. I'd hear the record, and I'd go, I can do that. Okay, I, I can play like that. As a result of that... I got a whole ton of gigs, and then Paul recommended me for Herbie Hancock's gig. And that's how I met Bill Summers and Mr. Hancock, and here we are. A lot now. of history, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, something that you guys might get a kick out of. My oldest son is 17, and he's a bit of a head. Like I, We used to live in New York, and I'd take him to the Blue Note. We used to go see McCoy Tyner all the time. We'd go see uh, everybody. We'd just go, go see a lot of shows. He's a, so he's a big jazz head. The first show we went to after COVID, Herbie was out here in Seattle, and we went to go see that show. And he turned around, and he said to me, there's no way he's 80 years old. <laughs> you don't look 80. You were in Seattle. I'm just outside of Seattle. Yeah, yeah. After years and years in New York, I'm in Seattle. Yeah. I just did a record with Skerrick and Rain and Wayne Horowitz. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Also, Eddie Henderson and Henry the Skipper Franklin. Excuse me for varying off from the headhunters here for a minute. But I just said in Seattle, I'm like, oh, man, I just, I just, play, Eddie Henderson just played, and Bill Summers is on it too. Oh, amazing. I can't wait to hear that. Wayne's one of my favorite piano players. Oh, he's bad, man. And, and Bill put all kinds of wonderful, it's like I, it was, with me and Eddie were listening to it yesterday as he was, because I've already played, so it was just me and him in the studio with just him playing trumpet. And I was listening to everything that was going on. I'm thinking, this is going to be a hell of a record, man, you know? Skerrick's a monster, too. Every guy on there is top shelf. Nice. Let's talk about the new album. So Greg sent it over to me to listen to when, when we were talking about uh, getting together to, to speak. And I listened to, again, with my son, a couple of seconds into, into Congo Square, he said to me, oh, this record's going to push some boundaries. That was, that was, I like that. I'm just bragging about my 17-year-old. But not a paint-by-numbers record at all, especially the first few tracks. Like, you guys come out strong. So I wonder, could you talk a little bit about, about that track and talk to me a little bit about the arrangement, the instrumentation. I just, I can't get enough of that song. Tell me a little bit about that. 
I'll tell you, Mike and I were touring in Europe. We had an opportunity in a place called Nazaire, France. And this was the, <laughs> and Mike, he knows how funny this was. This guy comes up and he says, I want to book the band. And he said, I have a studio in Nazaire. The arrangement was that we would play the gig. We still got some money. But he said, I have a top-notch studio, a top-notch engineer. Would you guys consider playing a gig in lieu of staying in the studio for a week with my engineer and recording? And Mike and I looked at each other and said, hell yeah. <laughs> you got a deal, buddy. So the studio was really, really, really good. And the engineer was better than we had even anticipated. So we with Donald Harrison and Reggie Andrews, a bass player, and a few other people. We went in there and recorded a bunch of tracks. Now, there was one day... Michael got up early, I guess, I think, I, I think this is correct. He got up and he went in the studio and he just recorded some drum tracks. He played some solo stuff and that became that first tune, Congo Square. What I did is I went back in and everything that Michael played, I kind of, you know, made a part of the arrangement. I played some percussion with it to kind of like... Certain licks that he played, I, I copied those licks. And then I met this guy. He came over to the house one day, and he was from Africa. And he had an instrument called Cora. And he said, I, I played this. And, and, and I, I, I didn't pay him too much attention. And he started playing the instrument. And I said, oh, wait, 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 stop. Stop, stop, stop. Let me set up my recording gear. And he played the intro to Congo Square. I didn't know it was going to be there so until later. I said, Michael, man, check this out. And Michael said, man, that's pretty great stuff. And then uh, we developed his, Michael's solo. Michael was the impetus. He was the creator of what became Congo Square. And I just kept adding to it. Donald Harrison played on it. Ashlyn Parker played on it. I played bass on it, which is an instrument called Ngoni. It's an African instrument. I, I actually made this instrument. And the bass line and all that bottom end stuff was that instrument. I just created it off of what Michael did. So my, Michael is an innovator. Michael is a, is a person that is so creative. It was a, a challenge to just follow his, his lead and to add, just say, okay, ooh, he played this lick here. So it'd be, it'd be, it, it was a very organized, but it was based upon Michael Clark. I was just going to add that when I heard what Bill had done to the track, it blew my mind. It changed the entire DNA of the track, if you will, of the piece. And we were on the phone together, Bill and I, we live in different towns, obviously, so we have to, we do a lot of our business together over the phone, including editing, which is a challenge. You know, different towns, you can't just fly down there. You can't just fly up here. We're both busy. And I heard what had happened. He was like, well, what do you want to call it? So we arrived at, let's call it Congo Square, because it now 
to my ear, smacked of a whole other understanding, which it's it's fun for me to listen to. It's a fascinating track for me, and I'm the, I'm one of the guys that was on it. So <laughs> I hear, keep hearing new things. I'm like, man, because we're going to go and play some of this music. So I'm listening to the to the record again now. I mean, of course, like when you make a record, like most of us, we listen to it a lot when we're mixing and editing to find out what we feel needs to be trimmed and edited and tucked in and this and that shirt tails that need to be tucked in or left out, whatever the case. And yeah, you've heard it so much by then you don't usually listen to, I listen to the final thing a couple of times and I put it away, but because we're getting ready to play San Francisco jazz, we're going to appear at SF jazz at the end of this month. The other thing about that track that struck me is the the choice of the title, right? Because Congo Square is such an important place in the music and in the culture of the music. You hear all those different strands. You have the African instruments. You have obviously a, an African-American idiom in jazz. And then you have Donald Harrison, who's like the direct connection to Congo Square. It's really just a profound, amazing song. So is Bill, because his people are from New Orleans, his family, Louisiana. It really brings it really brings the whole story together, but also this story and like this group of people. As you get a little further into the record, and I promise I won't do this to you with every track, but it was really amazing to me to go from that to the very next song, Rockin' the Mole House. Rockin' in the Mole House. <laughs> Which, by the way, that sounded to me like a complete... Like that was the distillation of the funk and the Oakland funk, the greasy funk and the New Orleans sound. Like yes. it, it it was everything right there in that track. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> so I got it. I got it. <laughs> Definitely. You, you got it right. Got it. <laughs> All right. Tell me about that. Tell me about that dirty synth sound on that track. Is that a is that a synth? Is that an electric? Like what's what's that sound carrying the bottom on that? Do you guys recall from when you were recording it? I think it's Jerry Z. What is it? Is it Jerry? Yeah, it, it is Jerry Z. And also the ba- the bass player is Reggie Washington, who was there with us, the great Reggie Washington, who's Kenny Washington, K. Washington's brother. So yeah, Jerry played whatever got over there. I don't know what all of the I'm <laughs> I'm an acoustic guy, so like I, you know, I for me it's a challenge to play with the electric bass. I'm from the oh, I'm like splang a lang and and uh, for real. I don't know, whatever it is that he put on there. You know. hey, hey, Mike, Mike, I heard a terminology the other night I had never heard in my okay. life. The engineer in the house said, play the fat lady. Oh, I've never heard that before. Yeah, that was the bass. That was our right bass. Wow. The fat lady. I never heard that, ever. Okay. I, I had never heard it in my life. I've been a musician in my life. Either. Never heard that. I've never heard that terminology. They used to call it the doghouse. <laughs> yeah, it used to be called the doghouse. <laughs> I was thinking that's where you were for, with your wife after that night that Paul came over. <laughs> well, well, matter of fact, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. Mike, how do you how do you guys go about putting 
a band together each time you fire up the headhunters? Like there's some consistency, but there's a lot of different cats that come in and out. How do you think about that? Bill and I had the thing up and we call each other. Well, who can we get out of the stable of people, the pool of artists? We know some, each, each of us, of course, knows pretty much all the greatest cats, you know. Bill being in New Orleans, it's pretty easy. I'm in New York, so we talk to each other. And we, certain people, he recommends that I can't really, every once in a while, that I I can't mesh with that person. Or Vice or Bill will say, no, nah, I'm, I'm not feeling that guy. A lot of guys come play with us, and not everybody makes the grade that we're looking for. So the people that do... We hold dear, <laughs> and we call those guys. Chris Severin, one of the greatest bass players around, he could do anything. He could play all of Paul Jackson stuff. I don't know anybody that could play Paul Jackson stuff. Him and Richie Goods. Richie's another one. And plus, both those guys play upright bass to satisfy my jazz Jones. We play actual proof and straight aheads, and, and Bill will call Thelonious Monk tunes or call a standard every once in a while. So we like to have a guy that can play the big bass as well as the funk. We talk to each other. What do you think about this guy? What do you think about that guy? Or how about that guy we used in Kansas City? Nah, no, man. Uh, you know, oh, how about what's his name? Yeah, like Bill likes his sax player in England we use. I can't remember his name. He's very good. But we just kick it back and forth. And, of course, Donald Harrison. You can't get better. You can get no better than that. Yeah, and plus he's funky. <laughs> and, I mean, he could sing. I won't go into all that, Donald. It's just like it's a world of Donald Harrison. He's me. Alligators. He's a Louisiana guy. You know, he could well, cook. Here's Biz Coffee's Etifate Stuff Mediterranean Poisson Cobillon. I made a I made a seafood gumbo last night for the first time in my life. I hope you didn't, I, I didn't put tomatoes in it. Yeah, I did put tomatoes in it. <laughs> I did put I tomatoes. gumbo, that's soup. Well, uh, you know what? <laughs> I should I, I I got a little bit down in the refrigerator. I'm still gonna eat it though. Yeah, I had the, uh, it's good. I had all I had all the right stuff. I had uh my zaterines and my uh, my fillet powder. I I, I uh yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. What do you how do you use the fillet? I use it towards the end when I put the fish in and then let it simmer for a little while at the end. Yeah, well, that's right. Because it's a, it's a thickener. It's made from sassafras. It's good. It smells good. Oh yeah. Most people in Louisiana they don't put the fillet in until they eat it. They eat it and they sprinkle it like a seasoning on it. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's it can make your gumbo thicker. I always put a little in when I cook it. But my grandmother, who was a restaurateur in a place called Donaldsonville, Louisiana, she had gumbo rules. So my grandmother would say, no, Billy, we don't put oysters in that. That's oyster gumbo shit. Chicken and and dewy sausage gumbo. There was seafood gumbo. There was filet gumbo. There was different gumbo. She they had rules of it. Rules. No gumbo is a is a Congolese word. It's an African word. As is jambalaya. It's not French. It's an African dish. You can still get gumbo in the Congo. Is it a similar concoction? Something that's yeah, similar. Very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. It's, it's, it's a Congolese word. Like, as in Congo Square, it's not. It's Congo. It's Congo, not Congo, Congo. <laughs> okay. Congo. Yeah. Well, speaking of Africa, last night I watched this movie called The Beast with Idris uh, Alba. 
it was about a lion that was stalking a family. And it was so bad I was rooting for the lion. <laughs> <laughs> Lion, let's go, lion. <laughs> Eat that family now <laughs> and get it over with. Um, you you talked a few minutes ago about how you guys still call out actual proof, and you have it on the new record. Listening to it again, the interplay with the drum and the bass on that, especially on this take, is it's next level. It's really incredible. But the thing that really stood out for me about it, and I, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but did, did you? Bill, did you engineer this record? This record sounds so good. It just sounds everything separated in a real natural way. We had a couple of engineers. We had the guy in Nazaire, and then Michael has his favorite engineer. AC. Yeah. And I like him too because Michael and I have, we played with Hurry for many decades. It, it It was a bittersweet kind of situation. But we did so much too. Enhance what, or to create what Herbie played on. Me and Michael have been there since almost day one. The first drummer was Harvey Mason on Headhunters, but after that it was Michael Clark, and after that was he, it was Manchild, and what was that second record, Mike? Flood, Flood. Yeah, but you know Herbie couldn't play funk really, you know, until he met Paul and Michael. And Harvey Mason was the original drummer on the first record, but Michael took over after that. We did, uh, what was that, uh, Michael Pond Grease? What record was that on? That was on Thrust. Yeah, we went, we did Thrust next. And yeah, we did Thrust. Yeah. <laughs> that was the main potatoes of it, was actually Thrust. They had Butterfly and some other tunes on Spank and Lee or whatever that was. For the decades that we played, Harvey didn't want to go on the road. Because he was making too much money in L.A. as a session musician. And Paul Jackson said, I got the perfect guy. And he picked this dude, Michael Clark. <laughs> and that pissed a lot of black drummers off. <laughs> I mean, to this day. But he made the right choice. He definitely made the right choice because Michael was chopping wood like a like a woodsman. He, the back beat, the grooves, palm grease. These inventions that Michael, Michael and Paul, one became the two, and the two became the one. The, the back beat was the forward beat. They would turn the beat around, and if you weren't a bad mother, you couldn't even know what was going on nightly because they they could they were like twins. They could they could do stuff that defied the imagination, and if you weren't really a good musician, if you really didn't know the count, and you don't have to count like one, two, three, four. You just had to have the intuitiveness to understand what they were doing. And even Herbie, Herbie would make mistakes, but he played a mistake twice to let you know he knew what he was doing. Yeah, that's like something that somebody in a, in a, in a Miles, from a Miles band would, would learn how to do. That you know, sounds like Miles had he didn't have a clue compared to what was going on with Mike and Paul. They, I'm sorry, sorry. I mean, I love Miles. Miles was a good. Miles was not my favorite trumpet player. It was um, damn. I'm getting old. Was it Dizzy? No, Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan. 
Lee oh, Morgan. Lee Morgan, yeah. Yeah, Lee Morgan and um, Freddie. Freddie no, yeah, The other guy. No, no, no. Clifford Brown. Clifford Brown and Lee Morgan. Then came Freddie. And I, I think Freddie, I played with Freddie a lot. And Freddie was upset because Miles didn't accept him. <laughs> you know, Miles kind of dissed him. But he, he was kind of, Freddie was always sensitive about that, about not being received like Lee Morgan was to Miles. What's that about? Was Miles threatened by Freddie? I don't know if he was. I don't, I don't really know. I know Miles would come to the gig. We did a tour with him, and Miles would come up and play his horn. He'd turn his back to the audience, bend down and play three notes, and then walk off stage. Freddie didn't do that. Lee Morgan didn't do that. Clifford Brown didn't do that. Uh, Eddie Henderson didn't do that. Michael played with Eddie Henderson. He just finished the record with Eddie. And Eddie played on Mike's record. And and I have the utmost respect for Eddie Henderson, Julian Priester, who played trombone. Mm, Julian Priester, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is what it is. One night we were playing Bill, Bill, myself, Herbie, and Paul Jackson, the original Head Hunters. We were playing opposite Miles, and we were getting off. In Dawson. I know. I think we're in D.C. on this particular gig. It might have been D.C. But yes, we did Boston. We did Paul Malls. All Paul those. Mall. Paul's Mall in the Jazz Workshop. Jazz Workshop, and we're playing. And man, Herbie, Bill, and Paul and I just struck one of those magic grooves that would happen every once in a while. Where you're just you're not even playing. It's playing you. You're just free, and it's gone, man. And uh, some guy walked out onto the stage and. <clears throat> And I'm I'm playing, and I'm I look. My eyes aren't that good, so I I don't know who that is on the stage. I think it's a roadie, and the guy's doing this wicked, almost stop time animation dance. You remember those old movies where they would animate, and it would be kind of jerky. The dinosaurs would let you know. This guy was doing this wicked dance. I'm like, I thought, I, who could that be? One of the roadies out there, you know. <laughs> Comes a little closer, it's Miles Davis. Miles Davis, right. And we're funking our butts off, man. And Miles comes over kind of close to the floor, Tom's side, you know. And he points at me and Paul. Bill's over on the other side of the stage. And Herbie's kind of in the front. And Benny's over on the... Well, Bill's on that side. Benny's on that side. And Herbie's kind of in the middle. Miles points at us and goes, Fuck you, motherfuckers, man. (laughs) (laughs) All the fuck is my- <laughs> that's my that was my I believe it. Good ass dance, and he goes off the stage. That's kind of a cute story. Now, meanwhile, Herbie and Miles are not getting along because Miles is angry that he has to open for Herbie Hancock because he Oof. just <laughs> Herbie Headhunter sold a million records. So whoever you are, you're opening for us at this point. And so Miles did that thing I just told you that dance and. And pointing at us and stuff. So when we got in the dressing room, Herbie says, man, Miles was really feeling you and Paul. Because he was pointing kind of at me and Paul or so we thought. And so I said in my most square collegiate voice trying to make Herbie feel better. Because I knew they were kind of not getting along. I said, well, he really liked you too, Herbie. You know, I said in this like (laughs) where. And he goes. Get the fuck out of my dress room, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
So when you guys at, at that sort of first round of the Headhunters, when things really popped off, you're selling a million records. Were you playing arenas? Like, did the band actually jump up that level? Like, what what kind of rooms were you playing? What kind of gigs did you have? We had big gigs. We played a McCormick Place, Every Crowd Theater in Chicago. There were some big gigs, but like any any band, you play major gigs. If the ticket was certain, or if we played Montreux, that's a big gig. Big you gig. play Neon, Nice. You play in Umbria, Perugia, and in, in Italy. We we did the cream of the crop stuff. It was Weather Report, ret, you know, Return of Forever, Chicoria with Lenny White, Billy Cobham. We did the cream of the crop stuff, and we were treated very well. We traveled well. We're in the best hotels. We ate lobster, longusto. <laughs> arroz con pollo, frijoles negri, arroz. We travel well. Herbie was. You guys travel by your stomach. Yeah, Herbie was spoiled. Okay, <laughs> we had the best of everything. We had the best management. We had the best. Only thing we didn't do was get the money. We got paid, but I would have to say, to be honest, to be very honest, we were underpaid. But, but Mike. Paul, myself, Benny Maupin, and all, we appreciated the experience because you have to take the bitter with the sweet and and learn to to appreciate what you're given by God and the universe. And and Herbert was a Buddhist and still is. Michael's a Buddhist. Paul was a Buddhist. Benny was a Buddhist. I was the only holdout. <laughs> but I eventually got a Gohonson from President Edicator. So even I chanted with them every night because of the unity factor. You have to be one. You have to always love each other, regardless of what's going on. It didn't matter. It was the the love was so great, and the music was so great. We became great. I wanted to ask you about one more track on the album, and then I had a couple other couple other quick ones. Bill, you were talking about Mike chopping wood, and the last track on the record, Stopwatch. Um, oh my God. you should have called that one whiplash man like <laughs> about halfway through that say hold on to your seats kids hold on to your seats baby if, i want to see that live michael knows that me and michael always have we have this thing about that tune i want to play it all the time but it's not the easiest tune to play because it's in six the meter goes from six to seven to nine and back that to that latin that latin bit man Woof. Beautiful. Well, a guy named Christian Christian Sands wrote that tune, and I've always been in love with it. But it's not an easy tune to play, and not everybody wants to tackle it. And sometimes, just get through. I I, I told Michael today we talked about that tune. Said we got to play that on the gig when we get to San Francisco. I'd love to play that. Yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not easy. You know, it's just not. Have the the other guys got to know it too. It's not just me and Bill. The play one. That Bill and I have to hold the because we're the drummers, have to hold it together. Bill and I can play like one guy, you know. I mean, we really can lock up, man. And and it's like uh, the stopwatch is a challenge, and it's fun as hell to play too. Man, it sounds it. Beautiful, like. Do me a favor, work work it up for when you get up here to Seattle, because I want to hear it. We're gonna play <laughs> it. We'll play it. Oh, another thing, the song on there is uh, 
Vashpurikon. Bill always likes Vashpurikon. It's like a, a Jerry Z brought the shell of that in, and then we all sort of added our two cents to it. But it's like, you know, the more we talk about this record, the more I've been listening to it the past since Bill and I spoke a couple of days ago, the more I'm realizing the value we created with this. It is pushing. Your son was right. I feel that hopefully we are pushing the boundaries because we push the boundaries of each other, man. I mean, like a lot of times we don't play safe. We can have not played in three months or a year or we get on the stage and everything's cool. And man, some guy, one of us, somebody goes into another zone and man, that everybody responds, you know. Well, that's right. We're, we're playing a tune written by Michael called Four String Drive. And I keep telling Michael, every show, Michael, Every show we have to start off with, it goes like, and once we play that, the audience goes nuts. It never fails. It never fails. We know that the audience is going to go, because we come in with such accuracy. You know, Mike counts it off. That's it. It's magic. But you know what? It, it, it does. It, it's so tight that it sets the stage for everything that's coming. It out. does. It's not on the record, though. It's, yeah, on this record, it's not. And, and, you know, when this band is on the road, let's say we're out there for two or three weeks, man, it's really an improvised evening by some really seasoned artists that are not afraid to take a chance. And I mean, sometimes Bill will just start something. He'll just start something. And then next thing you know, I'm like, all right. And so I come in with a little something, something, and then Donald, and pretty soon we're off and running. It's not even, we've never played this before. We're making it up. And it's not necessarily one tone center all of a sudden, changes can show up and people are following each other through gorging <laughs> that never, never played this before and the audience is like oh man that was what was that and we're like um mm. <laughs> that's the essence of this music though right that's yes that's... you gotta understand something we're not musicians we don't play music we're we're physicians we heal people you know, once we play a gig, it's like a spiritual, medicinal endeavor. Michael Clark is a, is a physician. He's a doctor. He's got his Ph.D. in rhythm. Mm-hmm. And those rhythms heal people. Uh, and it's, it's magical, man. Look, me and Michael, in the beginning, you know, I had my fists up, Black Power, Huey Newton. But Michael was more of a revolutionary and civil rights activist than I, than I ever could be ever because he was, he had conviction and he had, he was, he wasn't white. He wasn't black. He was just Mike. And Mike is as beautiful a person as you could ever meet. And, well, and we, all, we, we always say, we're the original Ebony and Ivory. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we together so long. Then sometimes we haven't seen each other in six months, and we'll everybody flies to Europe. You got to be in sound check, <laughs> all on a different plane, 
we walk out on the stage and we don't even say hello. He's over there. <laughs> I'm on the drums, you know, like I get by. Yeah. And the next thing, pretty soon, somebody will say something like, what time do we start? <laughs> or when are we going to play? And we just pick up where we left off, man. And this is after years and years of picking up where we left off. So it continues to grow. It's the most... It's it's the most I've learned more in this organization than I could about life and about the world and about our country, the good old U.S. of A., if you will, than I could have with any other group of men, any other group of people. I've I, this, this has had a profound impact on my life playing in the Headhunters. You know, it started off it was a job with a famous guy, and then it just turned into this entire life form of its own that informs me to this day on what I'm seeing on television and what I learned so much at like a university because each person in this band is a brilliant, brilliant artist and has a hell of a life experience which they have shared with me. And I'm like, wow, I can't even hardly report on some of the stuff that I uh, but I understand it down deep right? more than even I do with my brain. You know what I mean? It's like the, I'm so I'm a lucky camp, a lucky guy. I was gonna say a camper. I'm a lucky guy to have been part of this. You know, a lot of people know that I love to play jazz, but this band's more than a jazz band. This band is a. Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I think you guys know what I'm trying to say. You know, it's well, and it comes across in the music too. I think I think everything you're saying about reporting back and and all the, those years of experience and this decades long conversation, I think we hear it in the new record. Well, I appreciate that so much because me and Michael, you know, you're a musician and people expect certain things of you, like with the Headhunters. They didn't understand the music when it came out. So they had jazz aficionados in. That's not jazz. Oh, shit. Play it. Play this. Play, play slide. Play that. Play it. Can you play that? No, you can't. You're making mistakes all the time because you can't play it. It's, it's not easy music. It's got some twists and turns in it that the finest jazz musician may not pick up, but it's got the funk like James Brown. And it has the essence of Eric Dolphy. It has, it has Train and Charlie Parker in it. And uh, and we're, we're blessed with a person like Donald Harrison, who just won Jazz Master Award from the National Endowment of the Arts. This guy could play reigns around most jazz musicians he knows more about jazz than than anyone on the planet and he plays and writes symphonies he wrote a symphony that's been played and performed and the dude sends me in six <laughs> a picture of an alligator that's right next to it <laughs> out in the swamp fishing down in louisiana he sends me gators right <laughs> At this stage, why a new album? Is the album the work of art? Is that the equivalent of the painting or the movie? Like, why a collection of songs in this day and age? It's just another chapter. You like it or you don't. I don't get. I personally don't give a fuck if you like it or you don't. This is this is me and Michael. This is what we do. You know, we just play what we play. And if people like it, 
They like it. If they don't, they don't. Me and Michael, we, we hit the road, a lodge together, and I love him like he is my own brother. And that's the most important thing, that we that we groove. We're artists. You're an artist. Bill's an artist. I'm an artist. And this record is just a part of the art that we create. You know what I mean? Like when we think about our lives, every moment of our life is improvised. Every you improvised your gumbo last night. You know, you you improvised this. What we're doing right now, we're improvising. And when we're talking, is I mean, even if you're not playing music or or painting something, life to me is one gigantic improvisation nobody knows what the hell is gonna and this is just a reflection of that it's what like bill said it's what we do and this is a prelude to to come see us play so you can see this done live and see how we go about it and find out what you like and even what you don't like and this that and the other you know well i really appreciate you both continuing to create and to taking the show on the road and this new record but also just specifically thank you for your time today it's it's wonderful to connect with you and thank you for the life of music hey, hey don't forget the sf jazz show is our record release party excellent all right well, we'll make sure we cover that and uh I'll see you up here in Seattle in a couple of weeks. I'll be out in the crowd. Look for me. What's the name of that club up there? Um, the I think you're playing at Nectar's. Yes, we we're playing at Nectar's. The swinging room. Me, the Nectar be among us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Mike Clark and Bill Summers from the Headhunters. And thank you, Greg Lucas, for making this conversation possible. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you don't like what you've heard, share us with somebody you can't stand. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.